0: Let's talk recent diet trends, what science might not be capturing, and a condition that I think is far more prevalent than we realize. Only here on the People Scientist Podcast. You are listening to the People Scientist Hello, my People Scientist army, and welcome back to the People Scientist podcast for episode 144, where I aim to arm us with some scientific information so that we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every new episode. How are you doing today? Thank you for bringing me into your day, and I hope that I can add something interesting for you to ponder. So what are we talking about today? Well, I was having a really interesting conversation with my sister that I wanted to turn into a podcast episode for all of you today. Her and I were talking about how our view of food and diet has really changed significantly over the last few generations, and how the onset of diets like the ketogenic diet and intermittent fasting, although they have some great health benefits that have been documented in clinical investigations, that there might be something that the scientific investigations are not capturing. And that really dawned on me when I started to create the lectures for my psychobiology and behavioral neuroendocrinology courses on the diagnostic criteria for disordered eating. And I was shocked at how general and how prevalent these conditions might be and how they may actually have an increased prevalence because of recent diet trends. But before we get into the core takeaways on that topic, Let's get into a foregone fact where I share a scientific finding from long ago. Have you ever had a food aversion? Food aversions mean foods that we dislike, foods that we avoid, and perhaps even feel sick when we smell or think of that food. Let me give an example of my own. I remember once I had dried banana chips as a snack when I was young. Then shortly after, I got really sick from a stomach virus. So I had associated banana chips with being sick. Whenever I smelled them, I felt ill. That would be an example of a conditioned food aversion. That through a life experience, my brain made a connection of banana chips to being sick. But food aversions may not just be a survival learning mechanism of our brain. It might be indicative of something else. Back in 1955, in the Journal of Consulting Psychology, Smith and Powell wrote about food aversions. They had conducted a study in which they provided a food questionnaire to 235 students to determine the number and types of food that they find aversive. They also administered some personality and emotion questionnaires. Interestingly, the scientists noted that women tended to identify more food items as aversive than men. On average, women identified five foods and men identified three. This study also noted that in people who scored at least six foods as being aversive to them, so they scored particularly high for food aversion, they also tended to score high for emotionality. The scientists also administered the Inwald Personality Inventory Test, which was an old questionnaire to assess for pathological tendencies in people. For example, they used to administer it to people who were attempting to become police officers. The individuals in this study that scored high for food aversion also seemed to score high on this personality test, meaning that they tended to score high for pathological personality tendencies. So back in the 1950s and even earlier, it was noted that having many food aversions may also be related to mental health or mood disorders. If you recall back several episodes ago, I also talk about how decades ago, scientists used to purposefully induce food aversion in individuals battling with binge eating and obesity as a possible way to help them gain control of their eating. So the physicians would put a ventilated mask on a patient, they would waft in the scent of their favorite food, then they would switch it to waft in a horrible scent of butyric acid, which smells like vomit. Vomit. And the physicians would do this exchange of smells over and over, over a 20-minute time span, several times over many days. And sadly, even though the individuals developed a conditioned food aversion to their favorite food items, it did not work in the context of helping them gain control over their eating, and they did not lower their body weight significantly. Why? Because even though the patients now had an aversion to their favorite foods, they simply switched to eating other foods instead. So instead of eating pastries, they now instead ate cake or candy, for example. So trying to purposefully induce food aversion was not getting at the root cause of the eating behavior and therefore did not work. Now how about we get into the core takeaways of today's topic on recent diet trends, diet culture, and disordered eating. The way we view food has drastically changed over the last several decades. In the 1930s to 1940s, when my grandparents were born, they had food scarcity and were brought up to eat everything and to not be picky about their food because they didn't know when their next meal would arrive. This mentality around food was passed on to that next generation, who in the 1980s and 1990s were surrounded by diet culture because they had this mentality of food scarcity, but now had food aplenty, and now as a result may have gained weight and now hence the onset of diet culture. This was when the low fat diet craze came about, at home workouts and workout videos. Then we proceed to today where we have a plethora of diets such as the ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, high protein diets, etc. And a lot of clinical data support some health benefits to these studies. But today in this episode, I and my sister believe that these studies may not be capturing the whole picture, that the restriction of diet may lead to disordered eating in some individuals, and that diagnosable conditions such as bulimia nervosa may be far more prevalent and realistic than we might realize. So now, how about we get into those scientific details? So let's jump into today's topic, and everyone that is listening right now, please give a warm welcome to my big sister, Candice.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Now in the last five years, the popularity of fasting or fasting mimetic diets, such as the ketogenic diet, have become very popular, and there are many clinical studies to suggest that there might be some metabolic health benefits such as increasing insulin sensitivity, reducing the risk for type 2 diabetes, perhaps enhancing the process of autophagy, which will clear up some of our damaged malfunctioning cells in our body. However, there might be some negative sides to these fasting or fasting mimetic diets that the science is not necessarily capturing. So, Candice, would you like to talk a little bit about that in your personal experience?
1: I have noticed any time that I follow a very restrictive type diet, like let's say calorie counting or the keto diet, where you are very restricted and tight about how much you can eat and when, that if you ever take a day off from that, you feel like, okay, it's going to be a long time till I can have this pizza or this ice cream or whatever again. And so I find that I would eat more than normally I would have. Like I would disrespect my signals and eat to the point where, like, I would be uncomfortable, right? And that's because my body's like, you don't know when you're gonna have this again, so you gotta eat it all right now, kind of thing. Whereas if you, if I try not to be so in a restrictive diet, maybe I would only have a scoop or two of ice cream instead of eating the big blizzard. You know, maybe I only have a slice of two or pizza of uh, pizza, and once my tummy was comfortable, I would stop. And so I have found that, yes, eating on a restrictive way of eating, if you come off of that just for a little bit for a treat day, you go a little bit above and beyond and ignore those innate hunger signals, those those fulfillment signals. You know what I mean?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's been even some research. It's funny because when I was preparing some lectures for my students uh, for this behavioral neuroendocrinology course we were looking at how our hormones regulate our eating behavior. Like we have ghrelin, for example, which we call our hunger hormone. We have leptin, which is a satiety hormone. We have insulin, which I talked about a few episodes back. And when we have what we call a binge episode, where we might eat more calories within a two-hour time window than normal, that actually those hormone signals somewhat become imbalanced. In, in such a way that our craving becomes even stronger after the binge episode. So ghrelin, for example, goes up higher. Insulin levels are higher after binge episode versus a smaller meal. And the leptin levels are actually lower. And that is a recipe for further craving, for desiring more food. And so this concept of restriction and then binging could create an imbalance, a lack of control over eating.
1: I can relate to that. Yeah. Definitely. Like, I feel like when I was on keto particularly, because that diet is, it's very restrictive. Like you you can't eat a lot of carbs and I love carbs. Right. Mm -hmm. And after I would have one of those episodes, I would find it so hard to get back on track because it's like, Oh, I love that stuff. I really want pizza. I really And then I'd be trying to find a way to ketoize it. Right. Mm -hmm. Or I really want that ice cream. Okay. What can I have that's keto friendly? And it never quite hit the same spot. You know, eventually I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I had to get back to a regular way of eating.
0: And I like that you know I like the concept of time restricted eating and fasting because scientifically it's fascinating because we've known for a long time that fasting and even protein restriction can stimulate the process of autophagy. Right, and we're interested in autophagy because that is when the body says, "Hey, we need to now be smart, um, sorry, energy efficient, and let's break down cells that are malfunctioning and use those for energy." Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing because cells that are malfunctioning could potentially, not always, but could potentially turn into cancer. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of stimulating the process of autophagy is thought to have some benefits in the context of getting rid of those old malfunctioning cells, using them up for energy, using them up to make new cells, and it's a good process to stimulate. And so I'm fascinated by the concept of fasting and time-restricted eating and protein restriction for a short period of time. But when it gets to the point where people are doing it so frequently and have now lost control of their eating, is time to think of it again and to try to rebalance.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And last year I had done an episode on the neuroscience of intuitive eating. And that's something you've been trying to do a little bit more, right? You want to tell us about that experience?
1: Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's just been like, I've reached a point, I'm almost 40. I've reached a point where it's like, I have been struggling my whole life, my whole adult life with my body image and trying to attain this standard that like, Who sets the standard, right? What am I, what am I trying to get to? My body seems to naturally come back to a certain weight, a certain point. And I've been hearing more about intuitive eating and about just trying to respect your, your own signals, your stomach. What, if I'm hungry at two o'clock, why can't I eat at two o'clock? You know, if I'm full at dinner time, the dinner hour, why do I need to eat? Right? And so I've been trying to do that with my kids. I'm trying to raise my kids to not be of the clean plate club. I give them dinner, Here's what you eat. If they say, I don't want anymore, I'll say, okay, how does your tummy feel? Is your tummy happy? If your tummy's happy, great. You can leave what's on your plate. I'll pack it up for leftovers or you can have it for your bedtime snack. I think for me and like maybe for all, a lot of our generation, um, just how we were raised, the way that our parents were raised, you didn't waste food. And so we learned to kind of ignore those hunger signals. You had to eat till your plate was clean. And a lot of us lose that ability to recognize those signals as we've gotten older. So with my boys, I'm trying to make sure that they learn, Tommy's hungry, you eat. Tommy's full, fine, you stop. Not a problem. And so that, that whole, I'm hoping with recognizing those signals, they will continue to be intuitive eaters when they're grown up and not have any kind of body issues or struggles with food.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a really good point too, because like when we grew up, in the '90s, for example, that was the diet craze, right? Yeah. The low-fat diet craze and the exercise programs that were being aired on TV mm-hmm. and how fat was, you know, demonized and whatnot. Like, yeah. you want to speak to that a little bit? Totally. Um,
1: so we were saying we were talking about our grandparents, you know, growing up in the World War two type era where nothing was wasted. You saved your bones. You saved the fat from your meats. You. Gave that to the war effort you cooked with organ meats if that was available that week and you ate it because you didn't know when your next rations were coming right and so that kind of carried over into the way our parents were raised and then our parents were kind of caught in this middle of growing up very restricted but being in the 80s 90s where there was more abundance but then like you said the pressure to exercise to look a certain way drink your drink your diet shakes follow this exercise program fat is bad for you fat's the enemy And so we kind of saw that both of those sides were you had to clean your plate, but you also need to be very mindful. And so it was like a, I guess, um, like a, a tearing, um, a fight between those two for, for our generation. So it's like, we went, I think back and forth between the extremes too. We got to clean our plate, but now we got to exercise it off, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to see the way those different dynamics from different generations with. Um, the way the food was plays out in how we are now and with what we know now, how we're doing things differently with like the next generation. Mm
0: -hmm. And I love seeing you interact with your boys too because I noticed that you don't restrict them whatsoever. You give them access to fruits and vegetables and you also give them access to candies. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times they will choose the fruits or vegetables over the candy. And Mm -hmm. psychologically, it's fascinating to me when they're not restricted and they're not told that something is necessarily bad, that when they're given the choice in front of them, sometimes they do just make the healthier choice.
1: They do, and I have found that extremely fascinating sometimes when I watch them. Like my youngest, I will put, you know, he wants a certain sandwich and I'll give him some vegetables, and he always goes for the vegetables first. And I've even put dessert on the plate one time, like a piece of chocolate, and watched how that gets eaten last. It fascinates me that they don't necessarily always go
0: for the, the, you know, the sweet thing. And it's interesting when when we look at the clinical trials, like for example, they've taken a group of women that want to lose weight. And one group of women, they will put on your traditional, typical weight loss program where they have a reduction in calories and an exercise program, and that's about it. The other group of women are taught to intuitively eat, to listen to their hunger signals, to stop eating when they're full, and to do exercise to make themselves feel good. It's not an exercise program to lose weight, it's exercise that you enjoy doing, like dancing, going for a sunset walk, whatever it might be. And they find that the two groups will lose a similar amount of weight. But what the really, the big, I think important difference is, is that the women that are doing the intuitive eating plan have a great improvement in their self image, in their confidence, in their control over their eating, right? They're not doing that restriction and then binging, restriction Mm -hmm. and then binging. Mm -hmm. And it is here in situations like this, when we may go from periods of restricted eating to then loss of control and eating more than we'd like, that it can develop into a condition that I think is far more prevalent than we realize. And I had only really noticed this or understood this fully When I started to look at the diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa for one of the classes that I teach, and I was surprised to learn some new things. For example, the diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa is that there are recurrent episodes of binge eating, and that is defined by eating within any two-hour period an amount of food that is definitively larger than what most people would eat and that a feeling that one cannot stop eating or that they've lost some control over their eating occurs. I think that that can be pretty common, especially when an individual has restricted themselves so much and then falls off of that restriction. They may lose some control over their eating shortly thereafter. Another thing that surprised me about the diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa is that I thought traditionally this condition was diagnosed if an individual had the compensatory behavior after the binge episode to either purge or to use a laxative in order to reduce the guilt and the amount of food that they consumed. However, the diagnostic criteria for bulimia nervosa also includes the use of diuretics or other medications to suppress appetite, fasting, or excessive exercise. Now as a result I think that diagnostic criteria tells me that bulimia nervosa could be far more prevalent than we realize because with the onset of fasting and fasting mimetic diets that restrict us quite significantly I think many of us that may follow a restrictive eating pattern who may fall off of that and develop binge eating disorder or have some episodes of binge eating may then try to compensate with fasting or restriction and then fall off the wagon and then go back to fasting or restriction. And as a result, that could qualify as bulimia nervosa. And I think that that might be far more prevalent than what we realize. And as a result, eating styles such as intuitive eating, to listen to our body to try to have a more healthy, controllable relationship with food, is of interest in today's world. And it's intriguing too, because we don't really have the the understanding, but anecdotally I've heard that Younger women have a harder time with the time-restricted eating and the fasting protocols. But that older women that perhaps are in menopause or males seem to have an easier time with the time-restricted eating and the fasting. And I'm really curious biologically why that is. And as you'll notice, a lot of the disordered eating like bulimia nervosa and anorexia nervosa particularly impact younger women as well. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious is it a societal thing that there's so much pressure to look a certain way as a young woman, but I think now we're seeing that for everybody that there's societal pressure for men to look good and mm-hmm. for older men and women to look good, or is it also a hormonal thing? Mm-hmm. You know, are if we have a binge episode where we eat more food than we should, do we have more of that increase of ghrelin, more of that increase of insulin? and very little leptin that's perpetuating us to develop an eating disorder and then to restrict and binge in kind of that cycle. And so intuitive eating is interesting because it's basically trying to have us find some semblance of balance mm-hmm. and to not feel like we have to restrict, which is eventually hormonally going to cause us to, to binge perhaps. If, we, if our body's saying, you need to eat, and the next time we're in the presence of high-calorie food, we don't have as much control and we'll have a binge episode, whereas intuitive eating is trying to get us to listen to our body signals. And I find that there's a lot of a lot of scientific validity to it, particularly in the context of self-image and having that semblance of control.
1: I find it interesting that you've said that about the hormones, because with our parents, I've noticed when when I was trying to do intermittent fasting, I'm talking to mom and dad about it. I seems to struggle a lot more with it. Whereas mom and dad would be, you know, they could go 18, 24 hours. By the time I would get to like the 15, 16 hour mark, I was starting to struggle. And to push myself to 18 hours was hard. It was hard. I just couldn't do it. Dad was like, well, you know, you got to give it some time to get used to it. And I was like, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense because... We're a lot younger. We're still in like the reproductive stage. The hormones are incredibly different
0: between us and mom. Talking about how fasting or time-restricted eating might be a little bit more difficult for younger women of reproductive age, it's intriguing that PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is a more severe form of premenstrual disorder that has also some uh, psychiatric symptoms like very severe anxiety, feelings of depression, irritability, insomnia, as well as the physiological symptoms like bloating, constipation, are are very elevated during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, the premenstrual phase. And intriguingly, diet might be linked to those symptoms. And so if a person is restricting themselves diet-wise, like restricting their calories, doing significant fasting, it may actually exacerbate the symptoms of PMS so that it goes over into fulfilling the diagnostic criteria of PMDD. And it goes to speak to the fact that hormones, therefore, might be involved in one's ability to actually fast or time restrict eat for an extended period of time. So that could be
1: why sometimes you have a lot of cravings for the carbs, like or or comfort foods, like you know when they say you're like you're like PMSing, right? You Mm -hmm. want all those little those treats and things. So there's clearly a reason why, Mm -hmm. and we tend to learn to ignore those things rather than respecting the body's biological cues. Mm -hmm, Exactly.
0: There's such a paucity of research in the context of women's health, women's hormones, and how that's influencing psychological symptoms and how diet is connected to that as well. We need so much more research in that area because even in some of the clinical trials, like there's a great clinical trial that was published in Cell Metabolism a few years ago, where they had shown some metabolic benefits to time-restricted eating but guess what it was only done in men mm-hmm. and so a lot of these studies have not been done in women or if they've been done in women they are typically in women that are post-menopausal women and i think that it would be fantastic if they started to do more studies in women that were of reproductive age paying attention to their psychological symptoms to their psychological health as well as the cycling of the menstrual cycle. And whether or not a woman's on an oral contraceptive Mm -hmm. might also potentially influence, right? Because when an individual takes an oral contraceptive, which has a synthetic progesterone or synthetic estrogen, it suppresses the production of endogenous progesterone and estrogen because there's synthetic hormones that are present. So the body says, well, I don't need to make any more progesterone. I don't need to make any more estrogen. Mm -hmm. What's intriguing that is that the synthetic hormones progesterone and synthetic estrogen have the ability to act on progesterone and estrogen receptors. However, they cannot be converted into the further metabolites. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason why we have the symptoms of premenstrual syndrome or premenstrual dysphoric disorder is because progesterone can be converted into other things, like allopregnenolone can be converted into corticosterone, which is a stress hormone, Mm -hmm. can be converted into aldosterone, which is responsible for our bloating and constipation symptoms that we have. And so if a woman is naturally cycling without oral contraceptives, that can contribute to the symptoms of PMS and PMDD. Diet might be influencing that. Mm -hmm. But if a woman's on an oral contraceptive, maybe they would have a different experience with Mm -hmm. time-restricted eating and fasting. So we can't make a blanket statement either saying women of reproductive health are going to have a harder time with time-restricted eating and fasting because we don't know that. There's so much that we don't know. Mm -hmm. But I think you hit the nail on the head before where we just need to start listening to our bodies.
1: I think that is where I think a lot of society just comes into um, issue with, with diet and weight is again because we've just learned to tune out what our body's telling us. And it's really hard to get back into that intuitive eating if you don't know what a hunger pang feels like, if you don't know what a comfortable level of fullness is, if you don't learn to respect your cravings. You have to learn that all over again. And if you've been doing that, ignoring that for 40, 50, 60 years, it's going to take some time to get back into it.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm also curious to see how it's going to change over generations, not just because of our culture and our increased knowledge that we have in this generation but also through epigenetics, right? So for example, there is the Dutch famine study where individuals that were living through the Dutch famine where they had very little access to food, women were pregnant during that time and they followed the offspring and the generations thereafter. And for example, he noted that there are some correlations and associations that with the women that were pregnant during the famine, their children actually wound up being overweight many years later. Really? Isn't that fascinating?
1: Why would that be?
0: It's thought to be a compensatory mechanism, that if the body had such little nutrients, the body had to become very good at absorbing and utilizing all of those nutrients and perhaps lowering the metabolic rate. Through epigenetics, that can be passed down. I've talked about that in a previous episode about our genetic history, that the parents at the time, the environment that they're exposed to, even their exercise regimen, their diet, certain traits through epigenetics can be passed down onto the offspring. And so those offspring might have been born with perhaps a propensity for a lower metabolic rate, perhaps better nutrient utilization. So perhaps they're absorbing more calories from their food and the average person would. And not all of them did, but there was a higher prevalence of them to be overweight thereafter. Wow.
1: That's really fascinating, actually. Hmm.
0: And so then think about like the epigenetics that our generations can be passing down. Yeah. You know, if if we're eating more intuitively, can that be passed down through epigenetics for the, the later generations? Or if we're restricting ourselves a lot, how that can be passed down to the offspring too?
1: Good point. That's interesting. And so then again, that comes back to the people who are trying so hard to lose weight and trying to, you know, fast and whatever to achieve a certain standard, you might just Never be able to because your body's just not meant to be there. Like I've told you that my body keeps coming back to a certain point and it may not be the point that I'm happy with, but it just seems to be where my biology says this is where you should be. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Right. And <laughs>
0: what, what standard are we comparing that to? Exactly. I don't know. Are we be- comparing that to BMI, which we know is more of a population index, not a very good individual index to say whether someone is overweight or not? Mm-hmm. You know, are we going to base our set point as to where we feel our healthiest you know which i think is what we should be setting it as you know where how do i feel where i've got my best energy where i can move my body best not some standard that society has created
1: yeah yeah not trying to fit into a particular size or be a particular shape
0: yeah mm-hmm. you're
1: totally right about that
0: like a particular size like different stores have You know, I could go into one store and be this size and go to another store and be a completely different size. Absolutely. So to base our goal off of a size is... Insane. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, And that's how we grew up in that. Do you remember how many movies... Would make comments about the size, like Mean Girls, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that there was a scene where she was supposed to be? Uh, She's normally size three, and she was like, "Can can you be a? Can I get a size five or something?" And the lady was like, "The largest size we carry is a size five, yeah, or something like yeah. that." Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Or I remember even in Sabrina the Teenage Witch, then making a comment about, uh, "Oh, you're you're a size six or yes. something like that," yeah. and mocking that as though that was too big. Yep. Yeah. And that's what we grew up in the nineties yep. and two thousands. And
1: it's so you don't even realize it, but those little messages just get ingrained
0: in you every day. And that's why like individuals in the limelight, like Lizzo, for example, is are promoting body shapes of all different sizes. And I know that some people love the movement that she's making and some people don't. Mm-hmm. And you know, I see valid points from both sides. And I think overall though that the message is, you know, that it's it doesn't have to just be the the one body shape or the one body size like for example one of my dance choreographers that I dance with Shirlene Quigley is one of Lizzo's backup dancers Mm. and Shirlene would tell me like Shirlene used to dance for Beyonce she used to dance for Rihanna and they would tell her you have to be a certain shape you have to be a certain size you Mm. have to stay under this body what you have to fit into this outfit and Shirlene is saying now today the way it is is so much more supportive like for example, the seamstress that was in charge of their costumes noticed that during practice, Shirlene would wear knee pads when she would do practice. And the seamstress was like, Would you like for me to make you knee pads that match your costume? Mm. And Sherlene was like, What? <laughs> You're actually like thinking about my health and comfortability yeah. as opposed to looking a certain way and fitting into the mold. Yeah. You know, and it was just like it's we've seen such a change culturally, even in like the in media and in the music industry that you don't have to fit into one mold. Yeah. You can look a certain way and still perform as a professional dancer and do everything that you want to do. Yeah. And I hope that all of that will contribute to just like a a healthier view of, of eating.
1: I'm just happy that we were able to have this conversation and I'm glad that our, you know, sisterly chat has inspired, uh, um, one of your episodes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think, you know, a lot of my episodes are so scientifically based and, in the clinical trials, they're not paying attention to some of these things, like the psychological symptoms or how an individual feels in their ability to control their food intake later on. Because in a lot of these clinical trials, it's here is the food that you're going to eat, and you're in a very like restricted uh, clinical trial space. That's what we call uh, effectiveness versus efficacy. Is it effective in a very in like a defined bubble? Here's the food you're going to eat in a clinical trial setting efficacy is in the real world. How is this actually going to work? Mm -hmm. And I think the clinical trials have not been asking all of the right questions. They've not been asking about how one feels about themselves after uh, eating this type of way. Do you feel like you've gained control in your eating behavior? How does your self-esteem feel? Do you have binge episodes after time-restricted eating. They haven't asked those questions. And I think that there's missing pieces to these clinical trials. And so when you and I are having this conversation, even though it's not 100% scientifically based on clinical trials, I think there's a lot of validity to what we're saying. Mm-hmm. The real world. Yeah. Exactly. And so thank you for coming on to the episode, episode 144 it is.
1: Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thank you for sharing your stories. And I think that hopefully a lot of people will be able to relate to it and realize that when they're listening to this, that they're, they're not alone mm-hmm. and that, um, listening to our bodies, I think it is an important thing. Definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Candy. Candy. Thank you. <laughs> I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discussed are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, Please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.